Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. This is Erin. And it's Denisha. What's up, peeps? (laughs) (laughs) You're very uh, uh, excitable in our introductions lately. I've really appreciated that. Yes, this has been me, you know, being able to sit at home and really stick to myself. And <laughs> you bouncing off the walls, I picked like a ping pong ball inside. That's really all it is. It's like, I, I need get it. contact. I know, right? I look forward to these even more so now. So I didn't think that was possible, but <laughs> yeah. So we have a very special guest tonight. We're just going to roll straight into that, I think. Um, yeah. I've been looking forward to this. I know I say that um, a lot, but uh, it's, uh, uh, I don't know, Denise, do you feel this way? Like when you get to have people um, that look like you, that are like you, does that like, it's a special place. It's a, um, there's a different tone to that. Right. And it's a part of your community is, is here and speaking and, um, and representing and it's uh, it's i don't know it's great so um do you have anything yeah. else to add i agree you know representation <sighs> is important and, and there's really something special especially when you know we come from specific marginalized communities and like just that ah like there's someone here who sees me gets me exactly for me um regardless there's differences and nuances that take place but just that overarch and just familiarity so yeah i agree with you I safe safe yeah yep well with that said i hope you all enjoy this uh recording with warner leland um it is of uh, uh what eligible for ce's right yes mm-hmm. yeah so if you're patreon feel free um, to take advantage of that. You're going to want to see. If you I didn't, agree. I mean, you should want all of the ones we've done so far, but you're definitely going to want this one um, as well. So For sure. hit us up. Yep. Enjoy the show. All right. We are joined this evening by Warner Leland. Uh, this is going to be another one of our CE uh, podcast recordings. So we're super excited that they're able to join us. Um, I've been waiting this. We had to like reschedule this. I've been waiting. Super excited. So um, there's been a lot of anticipation uh, on my end. But uh, so let's like brief introduction. I'm going to let Warner introduce themselves. But uh, so Warner provides a lot of of functional assessments and analysis on sexual behaviors, provides direct support uh, via program creation, data, data collection and ongoing analysis. 
um, of data with clients working towards goals related to sexual behavior. So if you um, don't have an idea based on the title or what I just said, um, or the description of the episode, we're going to be talking a lot about sex tonight. So <laughs> I'm super excited about that. Denisha has one. <laughs> what, I know Denisha has one thing that we just realized, like in the pre-recording conversation that uh, she was really excited to talk about. So I'll let you say that so I don't take your thunder. Besides this being a show about sex, because I love to talk about sex in general, but um, I'm really excited to um, actually talk about the fact that Warner is from St. Louis because it's near and dear to my heart. So welcome. (laughs) That said, welcome, Warner. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know what to add. Uh, So, yes, I split my time about halftime between here and St. Louis. I am at Empowered, a center for sexuality, um, and we are a specifically behavior analytic organization um, where all of what we do is addressing sexual behavior, uh, usually with neurodivergent folks. But we do have a wide variety of clients that we see. And the rest of the time, I am in Chicago, not too far from here, uh, at Upswing Advocates, where we focus predominantly on LGBTQIAP2 um, research and education. I'm never going to get the acronym right. Oh, like, same. I'm sure I said those out of order. No, no. It's interesting. I actually heard um, what sender, uh, sexual and gender minorities and just using that as like this overall that. encompassing because all the letters, you're going to leave somebody out, right? That's what the plus Entirely. is supposed to say. But mm-hmm. then it's like, all right, are you negating? Are you making others less than because now they're in the plus? And it's just like, I don't, we've had a conversation where it's like, you're never going to make everybody happy, right? In yeah. terms of like language that you use, you just do the best that you can. But um well, so, identity is so complex, sexuality is so complex, and all the language that we use to describe that, yeah. So can you, for our listeners, and also for me, just being honest, I have not heard, you said P2 at the end of that? Can Would you mind sharing what the um, full acronym stands for? Oh, and also, also this is going to vary depending on who you're talking to. Um, but typically, uh, we have a lesbian, gay bisexual, transgender, or transsexual, depending on how you self-identify for our LGBTQ. Typically, it's for queer or questioning. I for intersex, um, which is biological variability. It doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with uh, gender identity or sexuality. Um, A typically stands for asexual and or aromantic. Um, again, totally separate concept from all of those other identities when we think about function of language. Um, and then P typically includes um, uh, polyamorous folks, which again, you, depending on who you talk to, you may have variability about whether folks believe that you know that should be included in the acronym or not, and lots of conversation around these things. Um, and then two, typically uh, a catch-all term for two-spirit, um, uh, indigenous folks with uh, non-colonized gender identities. Yeah. Um, but again, even that, you'll see uh, variability around whether folks feel comfortable with that term as well, because that is a traditionally, you know, like whitewashed term to talk about identities too. So yeah, lots of complexity of language. Yeah. Thank you for um, for breaking that down, because when you said it, I was, I was like, P, I haven't heard that. And then as soon as you started talking, I was like, okay, so P, could be polyamory, pansexual, could mm-hmm. also be part of the P or no? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know what? I 
am sure that I did in fact just mis- misrepresent like how most people probably use that. Um, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I know that I've seen P, P stand for pansexual well, there's in these acronyms. Pan- right. There's polysexual too. So absolutely. That, you know, there's, I don't know. <laughs> Language is great. <laughs> yes, it is. Even when you, so when you got to two, I was like, okay, so then maybe they're going to say that the P is for the other P. And then you said two-spirit. I was like, oh, okay, yes. I, I love that indigenous folks um, are, you know, represented it, but then also what you talked about and just being like very whitewashed and depending on, I, I've heard that being spoken from folks that are not necessarily indigenous as well and saying that, you know, they're two-spirits and um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, thank you for breaking that down. Because when you said it initially, I just had so many private events like, oh, what does that stand for? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So with that, so with that said, like in giving the explanation of the acronym there, you talked about different concepts and being uh, things that were different concepts of themselves. Can you go back to maybe some of those things and break that down for some of our listeners in terms of like one that you said was agender or aromantic? That might be one that people are questioning or maybe Googling, hopefully, because that's what we've taught people to do is Google your questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you break that down in terms of the concepts and maybe it, talk about some other ones as well? Yeah, I love that. So the interesting thing uh, to me about all of these like letters being lumped together as an acronym is so many of these terms have really different functions um, when talking about different parts of people's lived experiences. Uh, so when we're thinking about like function of verbal behavior, it's a lot of different conceptual things all sort of grouped into one. So when we think about like the LGB and also P, if you're using it for pansexual, um, all of these are talking about uh, uh, sexuality in terms of identity. So who you're attracted to um, or experience arousal from uh, when we're thinking about other people's genders. Uh, The T typically talks about uh, one's own experience of gender. We also get that sometimes with the Q. If you're identifying as queer or questioning, that may also be referring to your own, uh, you know, experience of your private events um, as it relates to your experience of gender. a is a totally different concept. So when we think about asexuality and aromanticism, there are some folks that uh, don't really experience sexual attraction at all. Like we typically talk, talk about it as a primary reinforcer and assume that uh, sexual stimulation is something that's going to be like inherently motivating uh, across the board for humanity. Um, but we definitely don't see that. The research doesn't support that. Um, so there are folks that do not experience Um, much sexual attraction. There are folks that don't experience a lot of romantic attraction. You may be a human that experiences one and not the other. You may experience both. You may experience neither. Uh, Lots of variability sort of across the board. Can I just say, and this has nothing to do with all that, um, that it has something to do with it, but, you know, sex has been like a taboo conversation for me growing up. And so like getting older, the reason why I like to talk about it so much, because there are so many different experiences that, that come with a conversation and being able to open that up and um, one, just talk openly about that, but hear what those different experiences might be for other people. Like I really, I enjoyed that component of it. Um, And just, I hope for our listeners that have even been listening so far to hear, um, you know, different variables that might come into contact and just even determining the the language that we use in terms of how we consider or what we consider sex to be, like you said, primary reinforcer or not. So 
I have nothing I to also, add, but thank you. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to jump back real fast to um, right after you talked about sexuality, you talked about like the T and um, oh, gosh, I just lost the letter in my head. But anyway, you you talked about private events. And I think that's one of the big questions that I get asked is um, gender identity. And what does that mean? Like, what is identity? identity because our society so closely links your your sex your physical sex your biological sex at birth assigned at birth to your gender and so if you were to behaviorally define because <laughs> i think that's important because you talked about private events those things what 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 is gender identity behaviorally defined <laughs> that is a great question and that's a tricky question right lots it of is. people have like uh different theories <laughs> about this um and uh I definitely think about it as biobehavioral phenomenon. So a combination of natural selection and learning, you know, learning history uh, and your capacity to sort of tack to your own private events. So not to get like too terribly Skinnerian <laughs> on you all, but I do have a deep love of verbal behavior. And I think like when we think about teaching folks to tack to their private events, so much of that goes into um sort of the disparate experiences that we see folks having in their ability um, or ease of, of tacting variability in gender identity. So there's like, there's a lot of morality um, assigned to different stimuli when it comes to sex and when it comes to gender and gender identity. Um, and uh, a lot of folks have um, a lot more contact um, in terms of like modeling protecting things like cisgender identities. So being able to identify with that gender assigned to you at birth, um, you know, whether we're thinking about like public accompaniment or collateral responses or, you know, common properties, uh, a lot of folks have easy, ready models uh, uh, for tacting those cisgender experiences. It can be a lot trickier um, if you don't have clear models to describe internal experiences of, of what's going on for you. Um, and then also, if those things have been punished out of your repertoire, um, I don't know, that's always been the part that's resonated the hardest for me um, uh, in Skinner's writing about attacking private events is that response reduction. So if there's something that was originally like happening for you on an, you know, overt observable level, uh, but, but it contacts punishment over and over again, you know, if you show interest in clothing or toys um, or experiences or activities that don't align, you know, with what's quote unquote typical, for the gender folks perceive you as. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that any of those experiences go away or you're not still engaging in private events. Um, but we just may see it punished, you know, out of somebody's overt repertoire based on who they're around. So, yeah, um, I, I would definitely say it, it, when I think about gender identity, I definitely think about the capacity that you have to really notice and identify and describe uh, those private events that you're having and um, uh, like that capacity to, you know, discriminate experiences and interest and arousal and all of those things, so, you know, uh, that show up for folks uh, based on, you know, variable stimuli. In your yeah. I, what shows up for me when you say that is like your everyone's outward behavior, you know, what is that under the control of it is, is it under mm -hmm. the control of um, your private verbal behavior. So if you're having these thoughts of, I want to wear this, I feel comfortable in this, um, I like this, or this feels good, whatever that is, 
Um, and your behavior outward is inconsistent of that is your behavior that you're exhibiting under direct con contingencies in your environment and what's being reinforced and what's being punished. And I think if you look at whether it's like gender training or something like that, and the amount of messages and the constructs that are set up in our society, um, we think that I, I don't know if there's, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't get into that, like theorizing, but um, we can easily see, like you're saying, how, how responses are reduced or punished um, when those behaviors then step outside of what people find comfortable. Sure, totally. And then if you're a human that maybe doesn't prescribe to a radical behaviorism model and you're only taking a look at what's observable in the outside world, uh, we can see things like conversion therapy programs looking really, quote unquote, effective um, because of our capacity as humans to exhibit overt behavior that's not actually aligning with our covert experiences to protect ourselves, um, you know, against punishment. So I, I think definitely um, the readiness of some folks to take a look solely at, at covert behavior that folks exhibit and, uh, you know, call that the totality of their experiences can be really incredibly damaging. I want to take a moment just to pause to do our first um, buzzword. And we already kind of, um, you know, mentioned it earlier, but the first buzzword is empowered. Warner, did you want to say a little bit um, more about the empowered uh, work that you do? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I would say the predominant work that we do is, uh, you know, functional assessment um, rare that you see functional analysis because it's usually typically not ethical or legal to be occasioning sexual behavior in other folks, especially clients. Um, but uh, we do do assessment. Um, we also do a lot of skills assessment around uh, sexual knowledge and identifying, you know, what folks are interested in, what their values and goals are, what they want to move toward. And then essentially uh, work on behavior analytic programming to help folks move toward what they value, um, typically around uh, sexual behavior, relationship behavior, but also other interpersonal behaviors. So building things like friendship. Awesome. You you said that you work with the neurodivergent population at Empowered or is that at Upswing or both? Both. Both. Okay. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about the research that we have so far, I believe that either I sat, I can't, I sat in a presentation from the upswing advocates, but I don't remember who led it. But um, just talking about the research that we have so far with uh, folks on the spectrum, our neurodivergent folks, um, it was specifically on folks on the spectrum that we have not necessarily acknowledged, um, you know, sex and sexual behaviors. Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I think sexual behavior is often deeply overlooked um, when it comes to neurodivergent folks and especially autistic folks. Um, and I feel like we so often infantilize uh, folks who are neurodivergent and assume that they would not or could not have any interest in sexuality or sexual behavior, even though 
the data that we see show normed experiences compared with like a neurotypical population. Um, and to me personally, when I look at the data, more importantly than that is um, a lot of these larger scale studies that we're seeing um, in the past like five or six years or so uh, are showing that uh largely disparate amounts of autistic and neurodivergent folks are identifying as LGBTQ plus, you know, all of, all of our letters. Um, and that uh, we're seeing um, trans and gender nonconforming identities specifically uh, being approximately seven times more likely uh, in neurodivergent populations than in neurotypical populations. So I think um, when we're thinking about uh, serving neurodivergent folks and uh, working to support neurodivergent folks, um, especially as we're starting to think about um, supporting uh, self-discovery and autonomy as it relates to sexual behavior, uh, we absolutely cannot discount the importance of uh, being really skilled in being, uh, you know, affirming of of these uh, diverse sexual identities and gender identities. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about the ethical issues that might go into some of that? Um, uh, maybe about whether it's like analyzing sexual behavior. We you t- touched on like the analysis, like functional analysis part. You know, that's not really <laughs> um, ethical to be, to, you know, uh, performing that type of assessment. But maybe even then, some of the like the treatment considerations or something like that. Um, maybe how that might differ, or just things we need to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I think like right off the bat, when we think about our 1.01 and that reliance on scientific knowledge, uh, that this is huge and that we need to be willing to look outside of our field um, for scientific knowledge, because there is not a whole lot of behavior analytic research on, um, you know, uh, queer identities, whether that be sexuality or gender identity. Um, But there is a ton of data um, if you're looking outside of our field, um, especially just at like tracking folks' experience. So um, being able to make scientific and professional judgments uh, that are serving our clients and, you know, based in that data, I think really requires looking at best practice in fields that align with ours. So I definitely like to look at the recommendations um, that the APA makes uh, and all of their papers uh, are heavily cited, uh, you know, with contact uh, with best practice data. So I think that that's um, a really important place to start. Uh, I think it's really crucial that we're working within our boundaries of competence. Um, I feel like it's so frequently that you'll see folks say that like behavior is behavior. And so if you understand the underlying principles of behavior, then you're competent to work with any sort of behavior. Um, And this is something that I personally feel is absolutely not true. And I think is potentially really um, dangerous and potentially harmful for clients when we're thinking about sexual behavior. Um, So frequently I will see behavior analysts making recommendations uh, for using materials uh, that may look like they may be effective, but would actually be illegal for use with certain clients. Um, I would highly caution against attempting any sort of interventions uh, if you're not deeply fluent in your local law around sexual behavior. Um, and also if you haven't had outside, you know, training and consultation and experience anyway. Um, and, and that's, that's solely like a law portion of things, but uh, this is something that I think uh, in general carries a lot of weight for folks and uh, additional training, I think in this area is something that we should all be taking really seriously. 
Um, and I personally think shouldn't be something that should be uh, like subspecialty necessarily, because this is something that impacts, you know, the vast majority of our clients. I really would hope to and love to see uh, a, a wide variety of behavior analysts undertaking uh, more sexual health education training. That'd be really beautiful. Uh, I love the fact that you said that and it's your opinion and I agree with it that it shouldn't be a subspecialty and that this should be some you know a topic as well as you know we should be aware it should be part of our training um because we're dealing with people period and so um you talked about um undertaking trainings before you know trying to work with individuals who um, represent a marginalized sexual or gender and our gender identity. Can you talk about um, best practices for building competencies and working within one scope regarding sexual behavior and working sure. with clients? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess personal disclosure, this is like work that I do. So I do, you know, want to note that. Um, but, but there are also many other folks in the field of behavior analysis that are competent in this area that provide trainings as well. Um, I highly recommend if you don't already getting in touch with the Sexual Behavior Research and Practice Special Interest Group of ABAI. Um, that is where a lot of these folks congregate. Um, and I feel like we do have a lot of conversations around what... Um, specific best practice recommendations could look like. Um, and I feel like there are some disparate opinions, but on the whole folks seem to have uh, landed on a recommendation right now of obviously like maintaining your BACB credentials. Um, and in addition to that, seeking out separate education and credentialing uh, through an accredited body that's, you know, competent to provide uh, that. So uh, we recommend ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Um, that's definitely an organization here in America that's useful, but there are also comparable, um, you know, boards and governing bodies like that that provide uh, education-based certification in other countries too. So obviously like something comparable in someone's home country uh, is also beautiful. Um, but that's it's a really uh, lengthy endeavor. So I've been I'm in my final year of working on my certification and I've been working on it for the past five years. Um, and it's something that you can definitely do, like through a university based program or you can DIY it through continuing education. Um, but it is a full on, you know, knowledge uh acquisition-based experience. I really love that they require um, an implicit bias uh, experience. So it's a minimum of 10 hours of like really sitting and, and looking at your own, you know, implicit biases around sexuality and sexual health and the wide variety of experiences, you know, that a lot of us have uh, with sex and uh, really noticing how that impacts our behavior and how we treat, you know, clients or folks that we educate. Um, and then there's a, you know, a practicum experience that goes along with it. Supervision is required. Uh, and I highly recommend finding something that has all of those components because they are all incredibly necessary to be able to, you know, be doing this work ethically and legally. Yeah. And this is um, just a side note. When I went into counseling, my field, I wanted to um, actually be, part of the field. So like, I, I'm very familiar with ASEC and I just remember looking at all the requirements, like, uh, it's going to take me forever. And I don't know, but yeah, I, I do love the fact that they're very robust in uh, their certification process. 
Yeah. I remember I remember looking at it too and actually reached out to you, Warren, and I was asking a couple questions. I was like, what does this mean or what does this mean? And um, where can I get this? And it is, it's it's a lot. Like if you think the, the behavior and uh, analysis board certification was a lot, like this is, um, in ter- uh, for me at least, understanding it. I don't know, maybe a new student, that, that would have been for the board certified behavior analyst supervision process and all of that would have been, I remember being confused by that. But this was extensive, which is great. It is. It's beautiful. It's also really feasible. I do want to say that I like personally, when I was looking at it, I had planned to never pursue it because it looked so intense. Um, And a behavior analyst who had just gone through the process, um, who is a colleague of mine now, Barb Gross, uh, sat me down and walked me through it and was like, you do realize that a lot of what you're doing just already totally meets these requirements. It's just, you, you have to like sort of know how to read it. Um, and, and assess what you're already doing and how it fits into those requirements. So I would say that it's totally feasible. Um, I took one univer- university-based human sexuality course, but everything else I'm doing through CEs and supervision from Sora Stein in the field. And, uh, you know, it's, it is a lot, but it is achievable. Um, and I definitely would encourage folks not to get scared away by sort of like the technical language that's that's in um, their their guidelines and requirements. And we are releasing a um, free CE video here soon too. We just finished recording it, walking behavior analysts through those requirements um, and making them more accessible, less scary. Yes. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> um, one of the things that we as behavior analysts um, – and I, I don't have any data on this, but I'm just going to say an overarching generalization that we shy away from is talking about the bad parts that have existed from our field when we first got started. Um, and I think about the work that has been done by, you know, back in the day, they called themselves behavior modifications, but essentially mm-hmm. we are connected, right? We as behavior analysts are connected to the history. Um, and so one being truthful about our past as behavior analysts um, and acknowledging the harm that we have done uh, in the past and one being aware because I, I feel like especially when I get students uh, you know I'm, I talk to them about the past I let them know that you know we have had issues in the past, we still have issues I don't want to act like we don't but um, you know these are the issues with some of even our founding quote unquote, fathers, right? Um, in the work that that they uh, did as well. I kind of want to ask you a question regarding that. Like, can you talk about that history and then also principles of harm reduction as they apply to us um, as a field of behavior analysis and then us as analysts, especially related to sexual behavior analysis? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I feel like probably the most prominent study that we see folks cite um, from our field directly related to this is the Rikers and Lovas study um, out of UCLA where they were attempting gender modification. Um, the language that they used tied it to homosexuality at the time, but it was very much um, tied to expression of, of gender uh, for children based on uh, what they were wearing and the type of play that they were engaging in. Um, so it was essentially a procedure that took what they were calling um, quote unquote feminine boys um, and teaching them to be quote unquote more masculine. 
um, through play with masculine toys um, uh, and extinction procedures uh, via removal of attention and affection um, when, uh, you know, feminine things are played with and uh, token economies as well. So I believe they use like little poker chips of different colors to indicate uh, good or acceptable behavior versus bad behavior. Um, and uh, they touted the program as a success. The The client that they published on or the participant that they published on, um, uh, they did uh, see some efficacy. So a d- diminishment in these quote unquote feminine behaviors. Um, But it was not until much later on that uh, the family found out that they had even been written about and published in this way because they all conceptualized it as a very traumatic experience. And um, the main participant who was written about did end up killing himself later in life, uh, committing suicide. Um, And the family all, you know, deeply believed that it was tied directly to a lot of these experiences of attempting to to punish um, and extinguish these behaviors. Um, So incredibly harmful but in the literature represented as incredibly effective and uh i think that's something that always resonates for me because when you look at it um uh on the surface like sure it was effective um and i feel like so often in our field we ask like is it effective but then never ask is it good uh is it helpful to humanity is it aligned with the main client's values um uh, you know coming back to our ethical code i think that establishing of a hierarchy of uh, responsibility to different parties and noting who our primary client is and noting that that is always and forever who we will primarily be centering and whose values we will be centering um, in any sort of supports that we provide is so crucial um, because, you know, so many of these quote unquote effective programs around behavioral modification, especially around gender and sexuality, I never attempted to do that. It's always um, centering, uh, you know, morals and values of outside parties, um, whether that be caregivers or parents or society as a whole. Um, So, yeah, it's something that I think we really need to be acknowledging uh, within our field that that is a part of our history. And for me, something that feels really resonant today, because I see the same issue happening uh, so frequently um, with clients, um, uh, you know, pertaining to all sorts of behaviors where one's ability to conform to what looks like, quote unquote, productivity um, and, you know, how well you can uh, fend for yourself in a capitalistic world really drives a lot of programming goals instead of, uh, you know, really assessing primary client values and making sure that we're existing slowly to provide support based on those values. Yeah, I think what you said is taking some of our, you know, core strategies or interventions or principles um, and applying them in a way that can be harmful. I think when you go back to like the ethics uh, or ethical issues, you know, uh, do no harm, you know, is, is one of our core principles. And um, and you're saying we need to rely on data where there's tons of data out there now to say that um, to support the, the idea of minority stress, um, the experience of um, sexual and gender minorities, uh, the increased mental health risks, all of that. Um, and so then when you put them into this context where you might not be taking into consideration their needs, the example that I always use is, um, like bathrooms is this easy thing to, for people to see. It's like tangible. It's very concrete. Um, and so if you live in a place where there's only gendered 
restrooms um, and somebody's not comfortable using one, but they're not safe using another, if you're just going from basic principles and you don't have a scope of competency or something like that, you're like, great, we could just use a token economy and reinforce this. And then you're forcing them into a place where either they don't feel comfortable um, and they don't belong or they don't feel safe. And so it's not the issue with the person (laughs) or their desire. It's the issue with the environment um, and the structure, right? And so um, I, I just... I don't know. You can learn a lot from the history of. Absolutely. uh, (laughs) Well, and I'll see this. I'll see this from folks that are attempting to be affirming too. So there'll be a lot of people that are really coming from an intention uh, that's good and will have impact that's incredibly damaging. Um, So uh, with your bathroom example, we could see a behavior analyst say, well, see, I'm shaping up a behavior of you utilizing the washroom that aligns with your actual gender identity. I'm doing you a service. Uh, we're gonna work on pushing through those feelings of being unsafe. Um, when we link, look at some of uh, Winkler's research uh, around the same time as Rikers and Lovas as well, they were taking a look at a different approach, which they felt was more affirming, uh, which was using skills groups to build the capacity to be more assertive in one's sexuality and gender identity. Um, and they thought, well, if we can just teach you some self-assertion, then you'll be fine. Um, and they actually noted some study limitations for themselves that they thought that the trials that they had, like the probes for safety, uh, were so minuscule that they weren't going to get any meaningful data and uh their most like basic level step one uh was so aversive to so many participants that they had flat out refusal to engage in it um it was things like um going up to a stranger and telling them that you're gay or going up to a police officer and disclosing your identity um and these researchers could not see how uh this would not be a beneficial step for folks um complete ignorance to all of the systemic issues and the potential danger and the potential harm and thought, well, if we just shape up resilience, uh, then you'll be fine. You'll be good to go. Uh, And in reality, that can be so potentially damaging because we're not really fully looking at the context and the environment that we're then leaving people in. I could even see that in the context of, let's say, like parent training and working with parents to help them, um, like let's say a kidney is trying to explore gender identity and we're trying to teach parents how to maybe facilitate that and how to respond um, in, in ways that are affirming and, um, and safe. And, um, but if you go to write, like, let's say a goal, cause you're trying to insurance is covering this or whatever. Um, and let's say you write in a goal that has you working through something and doing so many tasks to work towards gender identity, but the kid's not ready to do that, you know, then what happens because you've written your treatment goal to be something that's forcing them into do something that they're not ready to do. And it's, it's different because we're always focused on like skills and acquisition of all these things. And um, for me, it's like, how can we acquire um, an affirming and an environment that is safe for self-advocacy and open communication and things like that? Absolutely. And so that's primarily what I think of when I think of harm reduction. Um, So this is a modality that was birthed out um, of folks attempting more humane ways to um, interact with and support uh, criminalized drug users. Um, But it is like so cross applicable to any sort of behavior that has the potential for harm. And there are so many behaviors that we all engage in every day that have the potential for harm. If you're out driving your car, you know, if you're to crossing the street. Uh, these, these are things that contain some inherent risk um, and we all engage in them. We use seat belts, uh, we use cross 
crosswalks. We look both ways. There are steps that we take to minimize uh, harmful impacts of these behaviors that do contain some inherent risk. Um, so I think it's so important that we're cognizant of the fact that just because a behavior has the potential to be high risk doesn't mean that it is also a valued behavior and something we should be supporting. Um, and harm reduction takes a look at any positive change. That's sort of their motto. Um, and this is something that I really wish all of behavior analysis would move toward. I think it's so cross applicable. Um, and the way that it really diverges from a lot of the programming that I see right now is um, it is centered on any positive change. And it means that we might not have goals that we would consider to be optimal goals. Um, the client's goal and the client value may not be what we personally would decide uh, is quote unquote safest in the situation or quote unquote best in the situation or quote unquote most socially valid based on our own definitions of what that means. Um, and it's willing to be able to work toward goals that maybe would be different than our own goals. Um, and I think that that's something that's uh, is super rare uh, to see supported. Um, but the core of it is self-advocacy. Um, it's problem solving. It's identifying, uh, you know, one's own internal values and goals and taking a look at, um, you know, the parts of harm minimization that are actually important to a given individual. So when we think about sexual behavior, there's all sorts of potential risks and harms involved, you know, whether that be, you know, like STIs, uh, whether that be a potential for pregnancy, if pregnancy is unwanted in the situation, whether that be, you know, emotional harm, um, whether that be inflicting harm on others, um, you know, the potential for being assaulted or assaulting someone else is definitely a very real consideration. Um, All of these are potential harms and some of them, uh, maybe ones that clients aren't really interested in focusing on or working toward reducing. Um, others may feel a lot more pertinent. And um, it's a modality that is a lot more self-led on, on the part of the client in terms of deciding where the focus should be and what reducing harm should look like. Um, and that can feel really scary <laughs> for a practitioner, uh, for sure. Um, but uh, I, I think it's incredibly valuable when we think about, you know, centering that primary client. I want to take a moment to uh, do our second buzzword just really fast. Um, Second buzzword is upswing. And we've talked a little bit about upswing. Uh, Advocates, check out their work. But Warner, if you want to add anything. Sure, absolutely. Um, So a lot of the work that we do at Upswing uh, focuses primarily on research uh, and education. So we did just wrap up a lovely collaborative project taking a look at um, top surgery, uh, which would be um, essentially like chest or breast reduction or removal, um, typically for uh, transgender folks who have been assigned female at birth um, so that their bodies uh, align more closely uh, with their gender identities or the way that they wish their um, uh, bodies to appear. Uh, So that is beautiful. That's up on our website now. And uh, I was really excited that we got to collaborate on some of that work. I need to go look at that. Oh, and just to, um, Warner, you all recently, I want to say within the past six months, I don't remember the exact date, but released a self-assessment in behavior analysis and practice. Can you talk about that just briefly? Yeah, we did. Um, So that was something really lovely that we got to work on. Um, 
It is a self-assessment for folks uh, to engage in um, more transgender affirming behaviors uh, with their clients, with their colleagues, with their students and their supervisees. Um, So it is a pretty easy checklist to go through. Um, It goes through our ethical guidelines and then also some separate supportive behaviors as well um, and asks folks to just identify spaces where maybe they have room for growth for making themselves or their organizations a little bit more affirming. Um, I feel like a lot of the assessments that we saw that existed already had a lot to do with like implicit bias and values and feelings and perceptions. And we were having a hard time finding one that actually had like observable and measurable behaviors and things folks could engage in uh, for positive change. So that's very much where we wanted to center uh, that checklist. So one of the things when we started talking earlier, you mentioned uh, neurodivergent. Um, And in our field, we hear we have we're hearing more and more about the neurodiversity movement. Um, can you talk about how a perspective of neurodiversity differs from the more traditional view of intellectual and learning disability or mental illness and the impact of this framework on behavior analytics, sex education? Yes, absolutely. Um, So uh, when we think about models for viewing disability, um, originally, um, at least uh, historically in America, our views of disabilities uh, were formed through a moral model. So any sort of uh, disability or divergence uh, was viewed as um, being a moral failing, either on the part of the individuals or the parents. Um, You weren't aligning with the current moral values of the time, um, and you were being punished for it, uh, an incredibly damaging viewpoint. Uh, From there, we saw a shift to a medical model uh, that said, no, there's no sort of moral feeling happening for you. Um, It's just something that's biologically wrong with the body. Um, And this was considered a lot of progress, right? It looked like it was moving away from uh, some harmful paradigms, which it was. Um, However, this is a really problematic model, too. It suggests that there's, you know, something wrong with the individual uh, who's disabled. Um, And uh, it suggests that um, the fault uh, for any sort of ability to or, or lack of ability to easily move through the environment is their fault and is something that should be fixable via fixing them. Um, a really damaging message to be giving to anyone, um, but it is uh, predominantly what we still rely on in many circles. And if you're doing any sort of supports or programming um, that involves insurance billing, uh, this is something that we're using because you're using medical codes to address something that has a medical diagnosis. And it's very much viewed through this lens of working to quote unquote, fix a problem uh, within the individual. Um, As behavior analysts, we know that this is absolutely like a mentalistic fallacy, right? We're always and only ever shifting the environment. Um, uh, But it's still, language that's really harmful and it's still like a paradigm that's really harmful um, and can absolutely be misrepresented Um, and uh, I definitely feel like there is the capacity to use our science and our technology 
in a way that sort of like reinforces these principles that it's, it's the individual that needs to be shifting what they're doing to fit in um, or to exist more easily. Um, so neurodiversity is just looking um, more at a social model instead of a medical model. So noting that any sort of um, issues that an individual faces, especially a disabled individual or a neurodivergent individual, all lie exclusively within the environment and any sort of shift that we should be making is a shift in the environment, um, that these are social barriers, that they're often systemic social barriers, uh, that we live in a world um, that actively utilizes oppression and actively utilizes uh, constructing societies that um, create barriers for disabled and neurodivergent individuals. Um, And that before we see a real change in that, um, it's unlikely that we're going to see uh, significant shifts for our clients. So this is a model that just notes that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the individual, (laughs) that if you are a neurodivergent individual or a disabled individual, that there is nothing about you that needs to be fixed. Um, It's the environment that needs shifting. I love that. And I would encourage listeners right now, too, if you haven't, to go back to one of our earlier episodes where we did a panel, um, neurodiverse panel, and it was uh, beautiful. I think as as far as like uh, positive feedback that I've heard, never heard any negative feedback about our, our our podcast yet but as far as messages or anything coming to me or you know it's about that one it's just the um i think that got a lot of great feedback because it took exactly what you just said and and gave uh, that's what you heard from three different people um on that podcast so mm-hmm. i think that's there's beautiful. so much yeah, there's so many conversations that are being had right now, but many more that need to be had. And then, you know, quite frankly, the work that we need to do around it after these conversations are being had. But um, with us as, you know, analysts, a lot of times some of us are working in early intervention and we don't communicate with folks from the neural, you know, divergent neurodivergent folks or autistic individuals. We don't communicate and we don't get to hear about the work that we did with them. So of course our intentions are well, and like you were talking about intention over impact, we hear, we could hear, you know, down the line that this actually was harmful and we, you know, treated our individuals using this medical model versus, you know, we do understand that though, right. As behavior analysts, as you said, with this, the environment needs shifting, but when it comes down to it, what are we changing? The stemming behaviors or things like that, where we're saying that this is inherently you and and what you present is not good enough for blah, blah, blah. And so um, I, I do love the conversations that we're having because it's directly, in, we know 67% of our field autism. So I hope that our listeners are, you know, are able to get something. I'm able to get something from that. Um, I'm thankful to, for the fact that I've been able to work with a wide range of individuals. And like, even just recently, I have to have a conversation with um, an individual that is very aware of the anti-ABA movement and is like, what the F, you know, what's you trying to change? You trying to change me? Right. So like, how do we, how are we going to have those conversations with the people that we say that we, we seek to serve? Like we're here, I'm, I'm here to serve the folks that I work with um, and, and I say that as a servant leader. Um, and so are you going to listen? Are, are we going to, you know, s- actually sit back and um, take those words in and shift our behaviors towards them? And how can we be affirming when these conversations need to happen versus being um, the word that I'm looking for is slipping me, but kind of be oh defensive, you know, being defensive about it. Um, 
and recognizing that. Yeah. Absolutely. And well, I think it really does start with looking at our own behavior and saying, am I trying to change you? You know, (laughs) am I trying to, you know, reduce your really valuable self-stimulatory behaviors? Do I have goals related to compliance? Um, And oh my goodness, I could, we could do a whole separate podcast on compliance related goals and how this impacts, um, uh, you know, potential for sexual abuse later on in a client's lifetime. You know, if you're training someone that their no is not valuable, um, that their no is not to be, you know, listened to or respected to, if you punish or extinguish somebody's ability to self-advocate out of their repertoire, like what are you doing for them uh, long-term? But especially when we're thinking about the high, high rates of sexual abuse uh, within neurodivergent populations, like how are you impacting, you know, their ability to, uh, you know, protect themselves and to self-advocate against sexual advances as well. Um, and then these are such important considerations um, coming back to the medical model for sexuality and gender identity on the whole as well, too. Like so frequently to access affirming treatment, you have to have some sort of medicalized diagnosis. Um, and if we're seeing a covariance of you know, autism or other neurodivergence and um, being a sexual or gender minority, so frequently you're seeing multiple minority stress um, and then seeing how that's uh, impacted through the medical model. So, so frequently um, someone will not be given access to affirming treatment uh, for gender identity, or they'll be asked entirely different questions um, in a a sexual health assessment from their medical providers, or the sexual health assessment will be entirely skipped uh, for them. And uh, just the potential for harm and damage through these medicalized models um, at sort of that intersection of autism and neurodivergence and sexuality, gender identity have such potential for harm. And Warner thinks so highly and so strongly about this that they wore a shirt to the podcast recording <laughs> that says noncompliance is a social skill. And I just like I have to tell everybody that I love it because I, I yes, every I don't even there's nothing even to add. Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, yeah. And, and so eloquently and, and following that up with why that's so important. Um, uh, you know, it's, I, I try when I am teaching like graduate students, like to be behavior analyst is um, to think about um, if you are having a goal of noncompliance, that's great. What are you targeting? And then I said, okay, if you're teaching a kid, generalization is a skill maintenance is, or is a goal. Maintenance is a goal, right? What happens when they've been taught, to comply with everything and then a stranger tries to take them or a stranger tries to touch them or somebody in their family tries to do that. And it's, you'll, you'll see in the chat be like, Oh crap. Like I've never thought Mm -hmm. about that. This is not like nobody's saying this. And it's because like treatment plans that they're running right now, behavior analysts currently are not addressing this and it's scary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. This is my favorite shirt. (laughs) Fully agree with the message. Noncompliance is a social skill. And I would argue that as we're eliminating compliance related goals, we should be adding noncompliance skill building because mm-hmm. the ability to say no and also uh, shaping environments where your no is honored is so crucial. Um, the ability to self-assert and to self-advocate uh, and to be able to get out of situations um, using functional communication uh, is so crucial. Yes. Amen. Amen. Even, hang on real fast. Even going back to if you think about like 
sharing, how many sharing goals are out there? And you're forcing kids like, what about the kids? that's like, no, I don't want to share right now. I want to play by myself, you know, like, what is wrong with that? Are we working on their sibling also sharing? Because I guarantee you they're not, you know, but it's like we're teaching those rigid rules because this is what we're supposed to do. And I don't, anyway, go ahead, Denisha. No, I was going to say, and and those goals should be taught early on too. Like, we're not just talking about teaching teenagers, oh, we're going to accept your no. Like, no, you're babies, you're three-year-olds that um, we're, I have, a, you know, kids that their, their programming is, no, I don't like that. No, don't do that. Um, and teaching the parents, accept their no. Like, this this is an advocacy skill and you want your child to have this as they grow older. And and we have to be flexible in the response that we get, right? And and know it and it's so interesting too. I'll just say this and this will be my rant maybe too for the, the night. But um a lot of times I've I've noticed in our field we're as rigid as the quote unquote rigid behaviors that we're trying to change from our kids. Like we have to be flexible in our presentation. And that's actually not a full rant, but that's all I want to say is like, you know, we have to be flexible in what we're seeing and and allowing folks to one advocate for themselves and then just being like, okay, this is contextually appropriate. Like, nope, you're right. We don't even have to do this right now. Thanks. Bye. But, you know, so that's my little uh, spiel to to foster flexibility within ourselves. You're going to get half a tally mark for that because that was kind of a rant, but not it really. Kind of, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. It's a beautiful and important rant, though. Um, and I love that, that you're out. doing that. I'll give you a <laughs> one. I'll give you a yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, I think it's so important at such young ages, too, because mm-hmm. when you think about uh, sexual health programming, nobody thinks of uh, those early pre-consent skills, um, but you're absolutely supporting health later on in life if you're, you know, teaching that your no is valid. Like that's so incredibly important and absolutely should be started super young. I even think too about family. I've worked with families um, where if kids get in a fight, they make each other hug, like mm-hmm. the two kids hug. And if there's a kid that's saying like, no, I don't want to hug, good like their body you need to respect that and from like with my kids it's a very early age it's like if they don't want you to touch them don't touch them that is their body their space they have every right to tell you what you are allowed not allowed to do with that and it starts as soon as they can they can begin to understand that you know um Warner, real fast, you had said something about uh, it's scary for practitioners. You said this a while back about something. I don't remember what the context was, but I think we have so much work to do in this area. I imagine going in and telling parents, we're not going to work on them following your directions because there are things that they're going to need to do to follow those directions. They're going to need skills. Like if you're walking out into the middle of the road, I need you to stop. I need you to turn around and come back, right? There are times when I need them to follow directions. So if we're not targeting that, then what what are we going to do and how is like, yes, they can see how advocacy skills are important, but what about this other part? You know, it's, I, I don't know. Can you talk to like, how would you address that if a practitioner was met with that question? Sure. Absolutely. Well, I feel like this is at 
the crux of so many of the shifts that we have been making at Empowered, um, because we do so frequently see this, um, clients who are not their own legal guardians, um, who are uh, building skills or working toward being more affirming of their own identities uh, that aren't necessarily approved of by their guardians, um, or that self-advocacy is going to be more challenging for a guardian to deal with um, uh, than, you know, somebody just like listening to what you say. Uh, And so we have been finding more and more that um, the majority of our hours really need to be like staff, caregiver, parent, et cetera, training hours as opposed to direct hours because so many of the folks that we're supporting um, like need some self-advocacy support, but really it's like shifting that environment. And, you know, the more I think about behavior analysis as a whole, if what we're focused on is shifting the environment, I don't know why we're not spending more time doing that work that has to do with the the social environment for the client. Um, but even as I say, I don't know why, like, of course I know why it's, it's scary. It's hard. Um, that's the person that ultimately has the control over whether you get to continue providing services or not. Um, and also so many of us, uh, have been, uh, taught to do direct instruction to create programming that works primarily specifically with the client. And we have very, very little access to like family systems theories, uh, to principles around uh, cooperation and community building and deciding, you know, what a family unit wants to look like and helping to facilitate that. Um, and that really is at the heart of so much of what we're doing, though, is is helping a family system grow and examine, you know, what do we want our environment to look like? What do we want our rules to be? What expectations do we want to have? And in what ways do these foster you know, the, the um, autonomy and, uh, you know, the health and the prosperity of our, our kids down the road. But so many of us are entirely unprepared to be holding space for those conversations. Um, and then doubly so when we're talking about sexual health and sexuality um, and gender identity. So it's, it's challenging. It really is. Um, but this is a space where I would say to seek out, um, you know, outside continuing education as well, absolutely, Um, uh, to be looking outside of our field for education as well, because again, there's not a lot on this within our field, Um, and to be really examining um, our own implicit biases and also our own sort of um, uh, viewpoints of our practice. That's a thing I really love from the psychology field that I think is deeply underrepresented in our field is saying like, hey, this is the framework that I work from and this is what I'm bringing to the table because it's there. Absolutely. It's a part of everything we do as we're assisting picking out goals, um, you know, as we're helping families. You know, do I come from a perspective where I'm hoping to make your life easier in the short term by focusing on compliance and education skill building to be productive in a classroom? That's going to be very different than, you know, am I focused on long-term goals, uh, the autonomy of your client, their ability to self-advocate, you know, their ability to self-identify their own goals and values, even if they don't align with the current goals and values of this family. Entirely different perspectives and naming the fact that we have one versus another, I think is so crucial. Um, If if we're not even willing to do that baseline, then... uh, I I think we're really missing a core component of what we as individuals are bringing to our work. That just gave me a lot to think about. Yeah. 
Um, I want to give us the last uh, buzzword, which is acceptance. And um, we are in April. And so if you work in our field, do you likely know that April is Autism Acceptance Month? Um, for a lot of folks, we uh, know this month as a different uh, name, which it was Autism Awareness Month. Um Warner, can you talk a little bit about um, the difference between acceptance and awareness? And um, I don't know if you're if you can also talk about it, the difference between like blue and red and different images and icons that we use when we consider um, the work that we do with uh, autistic individuals. Um, Yeah. So one of the three or all of the three. Can you talk about <laughs> Absolutely. You know, this is coming back to that conversation that we were having about neurodiversity and also that medical model versus social model. So I highly recommend if you're unfamiliar with some of these issues to uh, Google it, check it out, um, look for actual autistic voices that are talking about their experiences. Um, so many of, again, the well-intentioned but potentially harmful impact organizations um, that do autism-based work were often formed by by parents and caregivers and loved ones of autistic individuals, um, but then are often discounting the voices of actually autistic individuals. And so again, we have very different perspectives and very different goals and values there. Um, So many autistic individuals have noted uh, that awareness (laughs) is not enough. Just knowing that we exist is not enough. Um, That um, uh, acceptance is far more crucial. And I personally also advocate for pushing even beyond that, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to autism equity, to autism affirmation, to autism centering, you know, all, all of those, all of those steps beyond just um, um, being accepting, because we still have the potential to cause harms, uh, even if we accept that someone is around us. Um, I, I invite us to continue to push uh, what it looks like as we move toward like really centering the voices of folks actually impacted. Um, but uh, when you do take a look at autistic voices that are talking about this month um, and some of the organizations to support this month, um, you'll note that some people note that things like uh, images like the puzzle piece symbol are pretty offensive, suggesting again that there's something wrong with the individual, that there's something to be solved, <laughs> like a puzzle, uh, something to be fixed. Um, uh, the color blue is so frequently associated with the fact that um, autism is overdiagnosed in cis boys um, and a whole separate conversation we could have about the problematic nature of that, the fact that there's um, a lack of supports given to cisgender females and then also uh, to gender minorities as well who are autistic um, due to underdiagnosis. And again, when we think about diagnosis, again, that's just like a medical model um, and a medical professional saying like, hey, you're exhibiting XYZ behaviors. Um, And that can look really variable across individuals and tends to be overdiagnosed in boys. Um, So uh, a lot of the blue uh, symbology also is something that I think autistic folks you'll see pushing back against as well. Um, So yeah, I would absolutely recommend checking out the Asperger's Autism Network. I would recommend checking out the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. yeah, uh, really any sort of space uh, where folks are going to be given the opportunity to speak to themselves for, for themselves and like to their own values and goals for themselves in the community at large is really crucial. 
Um, and I believe both of those organizations have, as well have uh, really beautiful information uh, on their websites uh, pertaining to uh, gender identity and sexual minorities in autism as well. So great, great resources to check out. Awesome. We'll have to make sure we put those in the show notes. Yes. Um, thank you so much for this. Um want to move to our homework. I feel like you left us with a lot to think about, um, but there is one extremely concrete piece of homework that I identified through the show. I normally let Aaron give the homework, but um, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say for our listeners, um, go and look at the work that the Upswing Advocates have done and take that self-assessment. Um, that is your homework. That is something that you know, could be useful in your everyday life and also the work that you do. Um, but there, were, I, that's your piece of homework tonight. But I think there was so much in Lace in this show. And if you're listening, you know that you have a lot more to do than, than the self-assessment, but definitely add that, make that a priority. Um, anything that you want to add, Aaron? No, you, you actually gave the homework I was going to give. <laughs> like, that was what I had. <laughs> I was prepped. I was ready. But you all right. It. Well, it's all cool. Got Iowa, <laughs> it's all huh? good. That's then. beautiful. A little life hack for you all already, if this is something that you all have not been publicizing, um, is that authors are allowed to send you copies of their papers for free, too. So if you are not a human that has access to behavior analysis and practice, please, please just email us. We would gladly send that to you for free. Um, and you'll find that with, like, literally everyone that's publishing as well. If there's ever anything you need, you just reach out at warner at upswingadvocates.org. And you can also uh, email upswingadvocates at gmail.com as well. We'll get it to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. So grateful. Thank you. I, I learned a lot. I have more things to think about. Um, we talk a lot about like ally versus accomplice behavior and just it's, you know, what's required of us and the work that we need to do as individuals. And I definitely got that from the show tonight. And so I really appreciate you taking this time. Um, thank you both. All right, everybody. So once again, thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. Tune in for our next show. Hey, it's Denisha. And Erin. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a Pretty Easy Podcast. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.